Welcome to the Artist Rights Watch podcast. I'm your host, Nick Patel, a songwriter, a publisher, and a student of the music industry. Alongside me, I have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for bands Cracker and Kappa van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights, and his content information is in the show notes. Right, so we are back with another artist rights episode. Today we're actually going to be talking about the NFTs. There has been a big spike in the interest of NFTs, especially with music. A lot of artists have started to release music, such as like Kings of Leon, who released a new album as an NFT. Dead Mouse released 6,000 collectibles as NFTs, which valued at 96,000. Grimes auctioned 10 NFTs for 6 million, which was unique photos and short videos of her music. The Weeknd released an NFT, which was a collection of new music in limited edition art. And also Mick Jagger collabed with David Kroll for a 3D animated video for the new song Easy Sleazy, which sold for $50,000. ASAP Rocky is releasing an NFT collection on April 21st, which is actually the day that this is being recorded which features select pieces as well as some snippets of Sandman, which appears to be an unreleased track of his. And before we delve into the phone call, we also have a guest, Alan Graham, who is an expert in cryptocurrency and blockchain, and he will have an immense amount of information that he can give us insight into these NFTs. And also to give you a bit of a background of NFTs, NFTs stands for non-fungible token so purchasers of those who view nfts as a way to support artists actors musicians athletes most nfts can be reasonably priced for creatives to monetize their work especially in a current climate of no live shows nfts can represent the ownership of an original copy of a song album merch or any other unique item as we see with the weekend there's also some limited art that you can buy they are held in the blockchain where it cannot be copied or deleted. Buyers hope that the NFTs will increase in value over time and be a good investment. It is not something tangible that can be displayed like a work of art um, or trading cards necessarily. In terms of what the NFT itself actually is, you need to store the NFT in a digital space. So the NFTs are more about the digital token rather than the art itself. The value of owning something as scarce as digital authentication originality is what is really being bought so the items are more treated as merch for example um, the nft itself as a token of originality is what is being in question now so i will delve it over to the phone call with alan david and chris and we will kind of go through the speculations of nfts and what issues arise and potentially maybe there is a bright future for nfts and potentially not we will see. So thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you guys next time. Good morning, Mr. Graham. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? It's beautiful, but uh, getting a little stir crazy. It's still an island yeah, after all. <laughs> I can't go anywhere. <laughs> I and mean, we can we can go out. 
and we can eat and we can shop and we can do all the things that Singaporeans love to do. But the one thing Singaporeans love to do is leave. <laughs> and we can't right. do that. So fingers crossed. I got my first jab. Right. So welcome to another episode of the Artist Rights Watch. I'm your host, Nick Patel. As usual, we also have the co-hosts, David Lowry and Chris Castle. How are you lot doing? Good. Good. Two weeks on. I'm two weeks on being vaccinated, so I'm fully vaccinated now. So, kind of all caution to the wind, sort of. (laughs) We have another guest on Honest Rights Watch. We have Alan Graham. Thank you so much for coming, Alan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Hey, Alan, I want to thank you for joining us, even though you're exactly 12 hours difference than us. And so uh, it's late in the evening for you, but I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, it's quiet now and <laughs> I have no dogs barking. I have uh, there's no crazy. Uh, there's no deliveries going on. So actually, this is a really good time. And also, Alan, before we delve into the NFTs, in the depths of the nfts do you mind talking about your journey how you got to where you are today i know you're in singapore now which is incredible how have you kind of gotten to this point well i um started a company i was living in london for about i think about six to seven years and i co-founded a company um with a legendary record producer, recording artist named Rupert Hine, who's worked with uh, Tina Turner and Rush and, you know, everybody, 150 albums, so a lot of people. And um, we were trying to solve the issue of uh, music rights, uh, getting um, music inside of apps. So we spent about eight years working on that project. Um, And about six years in, we kind of had to let it go because even though it was a great idea and we had labels interested, and we were in a contract process. They were just contracting us to death. It was uh, two years in and we still didn't have uh, it completed and you just, you're just burning money. So um, we decided to take a, a second part of our technology and build that out instead. Um, and you know, during this process, I had you know, gotten involved in the rights issues. Um, so of course I was part of you know, being brought into the whole blockchain thing and, and whatever back in 2015. And, I wrote a couple of pieces um, uh, on Vid's uh, blog, The Tricordist, which I think were pretty popular at the time about blockchain and you know dismantling all the buzz and uh, what's the reality of it. I did a follow-up and I think I did another follow-up and still nothing's really happened. So, um, you know, <laughs> now I'm doing this other project. I'm still kind of involved in, in rights uh, ancillary, uh, in an ancillary way, but uh, you know, every time I think I'm out of this thing, <laughs> bring me back in. Um, so here we are with uh, NFTs. So, so specifically, Alan is a, a uh, kind of a blockchain skeptic, but he has a lot of deep knowledge um, that, you know, in a way, um, well, it, it, it asks the hard questions of like it gets into the nitty gritty and stuff like that. But but so that's what his blogs were kind of about. Yeah, I mean my back my background is is uh, I'm a technologist and a you know a, a producer and a uh, you know a writer and I've, I've worked in technology for thirty years. So uh, when this came along, I was able to look at it uh, both critically and we actually built 
a blockchain ourselves in our company just to test it out and i just found it uh unworkable so so i have given the audience a bit of a definition of what nft is earlier um but alan do you want to give your own definition maybe a bit more specifics about kind of what an nft exactly is uh i you know actually there's it's hard to give you a definition that doesn't sound completely stupid but in the context of music and art um, it's essentially a cryptographic unique token uh it's math uh, secured by a, by a blockchain that entitles you to proof that you may own something um, except it doesn't and what it does is just proves that you possess something because as chris can go on to say you know if you don't have a contract if you don't have terms or transfer rights and all you bought is really a number and that's just stupid so um that's essentially <laughs> what it boils down to sure and to talk about the customers for a second being marketable to the customers i mean i assume that you have one group of supporters who are just the super fans who want to have any sort of collectible of their favorite artists and then another person who is trying to maybe get return on their investment if they are perceiving nfts to increase in value is that a fair assessment of what nfts are marketing towards um i let me take this for a second so um <clears throat> it's pitched as your fans are going to buy this it's like you know my last two albums i did it as a limited edition thousand copies um and so it's pitched as a sort of a num you know sort of a numbered copy uh, of you know the the album and stuff like that but just randomly i was at the dog park yesterday in athens georgia and you, they kept these kind of private dogs because my dog's dog selective so we just keep her in a private park and then the person i know next to me who I know them through the dog park started just completely immediately talking about nfts to me but his pitch was that it was a store of value on top of it being a collectible it's also a store of value in you know that you know will retain its value and like all cryptocurrencies as they become more popular will go up in value now i don't know where they got this information but, um, and maybe that's true, but if a random person in a dog park, totally random, who's not really in the music business is talking about this, you get into the um, Herman Minsky definition of what a bubble is. And I don't mean to say this person isn't, idiot because he's actually a really really smart person that i was talking to but herman minsky had a definition of a bubble that goes like this herman minsky or i'm sorry hyman minsky um was a university of chicago um, economist and he said you know basically in any sort of asset bubble you have first the innovators and then the imitators and then you get to the idiots he didn't use those terms that's sort of what it's been interpreted as and so so suddenly it's out in the public that you can invest in these things. And these are people who wouldn't normally invest in risky assets. So something's going on beyond the store of value for part of this. There, there was an apocryphal story about Sir James Goldsmith 
um, who got into all cash uh, in the summer of 1987. And someone said to him, Sir James, why did you get into all cash? You're not in the market anymore. And he said, because I got a stock tip from my barber. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know any fans, super fans, sorry. Um, and uh, David, I know you can easily speak to this, but I don't know a super fan who ever bought anything because it was an investment. <laughs> you know, I have a bunch of albums back here that I bought because I, and some of them I had to source all over the world to get, right? So they're collectibles, but they're collectibles for me, right? It's the, uh, uh, the, the fact that I can own a, something that has a connection to something I love, but I didn't buy it so I could flip it. And so what you have right now in this first iteration is something that's being driven by speculators, you know, uh, people who are both speculating and uh, looking for opportunity to make money. And uh, this is actually happening. If you remember when all the blockchain stuff happened, it took some time for that to really get going. And before people started the, the grift on that, right? And, um, but this one's going quick. <laughs> and what we're, we're, we're about to see is that uh, the next class of people who are gonna be added to this, and I thought it would take a little bit longer, but it's, it's literally happening right now. You can find it on Twitter, is people who are already getting scammed. They're already getting scammed by it. So we're now entering to the next phase, which is pretty quick. Give us an exit. Well, people are, um, so one of the things that uh, NFTs are being used for is, uh, you know, basically what an NFT can do, a token can do is it can point to something on the internet that you own, um, you know, which can be resolved by like a, a URL or something. And we have um, people who are taking artwork that belongs visual artwork that belongs to other artists, and they are minting, you know, creating these tokens and selling them as if they are those artists. And uh, they don't have the right to do that. And so you have, in that, in that case, you have both the artist and the person who buys it are both actually getting burned on this. And I do think there's probably a few cases where the people who are buying these uh, tokens are also doing it because they're part of the speculation. So they're trying to uh, uh, you know, increase the value of things and, and, and stir up this market. And it's, it's happening so quick, I think we're gonna see a, a crash in it very quickly as well. So it's like a pump and dump, basically, yeah. like where um, insiders generate energy on a particular stock. You'd see this in penny stock in these chat rooms and stuff like that. that definitely, and I think- and I think a lot it's, of times this- the... I would just say that I think it's being driven predominantly um, because artists have been struggling for so long. And this last year has been just a disaster for both, for all kinds of artists that they're looking for anything. Instead of fixing fundamental things um, that would make a, a, a change for like a music artist's or a songwriter's life, there's always a shiny thing that people put up because they don't wanna fix, do the real work fix the hard stuff. And I think um, that's why we keep ending up in this place. I think, David, it's also a function of the market. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, the amount of money that's kind of floating around out there looking for a home, which would normally get put into, you know, 
relatively uh, non-controversial instruments because the interest rates are so low and, and are not expected to go up. And you have, you, know, you, you, you have an incredible amount of money going into the stock market and you have you know, an incredible amount of money being pumped into the economy. You, know, you have this kind of widening of the gap where you have people. I mean, I always say about NFTs is that it'll, the bubble will pop when they run out of Spotify employees to sell them to, you know, because there has to be a buyer on the other side of the trade. And eventually they're going to run out of buyers. And I can't, I can't help noticing that um, Ethereum is one of the cryptocurrencies that, that gets used for this a lot. And Ethereum is run by, which has the curious name of ether, uh, you know, to, to uh, describe the coins and um, that uh, that's run by a guy who's a vendor for the mechanical licensing collective. So I, I can't, you know, I, I haven't quite been able to connect all those dots just yet, but I, I, I recognize that they exist. <laughs> and I, I really, it's, 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 the artists have been lured into this by people who are you know, talking it up. I mean, it's no, in a lot of ways, it's no different than um, GameStop or, you know, this kind of thing. So, so, so that's so between you and Alan, what you're hinting at is what, what I, 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 well, I don't think you're hinting at it. You're both making it explicit. But what you're saying is sort of there was an opportunity here presented by the pandemic where it's already in the groundwater that artists aren't making very much money from streaming, right? Then the pandemic hits and artists are like, you know, really don't have any money, don't have any way of making money. So we start look, artists are sort of looking for a way to, you know, make money in, you know, in new ways and kind of been looking at the music space as an application for blockchain for a while. And so have basically, are basically taking advantage of the public and the artists. And I do say Grifter because in at least one case, I actually believe one of the promoters is like a real genuine Grifter, okay? I'm not gonna name the person, but just looking at their past history, it's, Calling them a grifter is perfectly good description of what they appear to have done with their life. So um, this 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 is this is troubling to me as an artist rights advocate. Where basically you have to me what looks like you know something that is not going to solve our problems, but makes the public feel good about helping artists solve the problem. Hey, Alan, you sent me a tweet a little while back um, that um, sort of illustrated a couple of these, uh, some of the issues with this NFT stuff. Well, I mean, one of the things that bothers me about this, if, if you understand a con, um, you have a mark, in this case, there's a, there's more than one, and one of them is the artist. In order to mint an NFT, in order to make one, you have to buy cryptocurrency. You have to buy 
into the system, which helps prop up the Ponzi of, you know, cryptocurrency, right? Because if you have to have a constant stream of people coming in to prop everybody else out who wants to get out. And so, you know, you're taking advantage of the artist there. You're taking advantage of the fact that most people will not make any money off of this. Um, you know, when you have someone like uh, Grimes, for example, who does sells whatever, what, $6 million or worth, um, you know, her boyfriend's Elon Musk, he has huge, huge holdings in cryptocurrency. And of course they can afford to take these risks and chances and pump up these prices and whatever, because, you know, they have uh, an interest uh, in them succeeding. But most artists, this will not happen for them. And so if you're sitting at home and you are, you know, desperate for anything, you might think, well, I can make an exclusive thing and I'll put this thing together and, you know, whatever. But part of the problem is you're being asked to put the money up front in the con and then hoping there will be a buyer on the other side. And then you're going to have to support that thing that you just created for I don't know how long. And if you don't have any experience in uh, terms of service and writing contracts and what do you get for your money and all that, you could find yourself in a lot of trouble. And so uh, these are the kind of things that, that don't keep me up at night, um, but they worry me a, a great deal. You know, uh, I think this is a, something that's uh, just, it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen and it's happening quickly. So you practically answer my question, but with the recent trend of like hypnosis buying songwriting catalogs, and that is a way for songwriters to get supplemental income, especially with the time of the pandemic, it sounds like you're not too keen on NFTs kind of being that way forward for artists to get supplemental income. Well, I think um, one of the issues with building things like technology and um, the problem with technology is there's no permanence in technology. So what happens is um, you're going to be reliant on when you when you make an nft you mint an nft and you connect it to whatever it is you want to connect it to um you have to explicitly you're going to have to explicitly say this is what you're getting for your money and then you have to support that and the problem is you know two years down the line you may have to abandon it because it's only as good as the support system uh that supports everything that you're putting into it so if uh you're hosting it somewhere and that goes down or you know it's all gone. And, and I'll tell you one other thing real quick, which is I know personally that there are executives at major labels who are already looking into NFTs. They're already interested in it. And um, if you can imagine like letting them run your NFT and putting something together, selling it, taking a percentage of that sale and then maintaining it. And you just have to hope they won't abandon it and, and leave you to deal with it later on down the road. So, I mean, a lot of questions need to be answered before this is a sustainable technology or solution. Chris, what do you see legally with, with uh, I mean, one thing that I see is it seems like the NFTs are, um, you know, they're, they seem to be rewarding the people who are making the most money are the people who are already making the most money, right? Like if I put out a camper van Beethoven NFT, I, I might do it just because it's interesting, but I don't think we'd make 
a lot of money off of it. In fact, I was thinking about like, you know, my typical trollish behavior. I was going to actually mint a coin at a silver mint and they asked somebody to make an NFT of something else, right? And then auction that coin off, right? You know what I mean? Like, so uh, I'm very trollish. Chris, what do you think? What are the legal aspects here? Well, I, there's a couple of things about this. Number one, it's a, um, it probably is not a security if you're selling a discrete thing, right? In other words, if it's a one-time thing and there's no stream of income coming back and no one's really making a market in it, it probably doesn't qualify as a security. But one of the things I've seen lately is people talking about selling copyrights, you know, where you, uh, you would get a stream of income back and they're divided, they're subdivided into like $1 <laughs> increments, right? So you're, you're subdividing copyrights in, in smaller increments than has ever been a market clearing methodology, right? Um, so that starts to sound like a security to me, right? And one of the, one of the things, if you're, if you're selling a security that you have to worry about is you know disclosures and who's your buyer and how is that all happening? It also has the feeling of something that it's only a matter of time until someone starts trying to make a market in this, either you know in a Sotheby's model or you know sort of a digital Sotheby's or an actual market, you know. Uh, and, and and of course the way the way things are going with this ridiculous money that's floating around, you know, pretty soon there's going to be, you know, a special interest vehicle, you know, in, in NFTs and there's going to be an EFT of NFTs. And it's kind of like in the big short, you know, the CDO of CDOs, right? I mean, I just, I just have a feeling that this is going to go to the, <clears throat> to the, to the logical conclusion of insanity, you know, uh, pretty soon, and someone's going to look around and say, wait a minute, what did I buy? You know, what am I buying? And, and then they're going to want their money back. And when that happens, all kinds of things are going to happen, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is, to me, this is the kind of thing where I have to believe that there's finders fees changing hands in the background. There's, there's all kinds of shenanigans going on in the background because this just has the feel to me of something that is illegal and as my dad used to say if something feels illegal it probably is you know and and it it doesn't um you know it hasn't happened yet but it hasn't been around long enough for it to happen yet but one day somebody's going to want their money back so i think you have to really look closely at what the terms are you know for everything and presumably there are some terms, you know, um, I, don't, I don't even mean like smart contracts, you know, or something like that. I just mean like, if you're going to pay somebody a bunch of money for something, presumably, you know what your deal is, right? So take a close look at the deal and see what it is. I also think that there's only a matter of time. And that's why I'm, I'm not surprised by Alan saying that the labels are interested. There's too much money changing hands here, right? 
there, there's no way the labels are ever going to let the artists make that much money, even if it is kind of like a chain letter, right? I mean, they, they, may, they may not perceive it that way yet, but what they do know is that they're, right now today, there's money changing hands in large quantities that involve their copyright, right, ultimately. And, and the way I understand this works is the album, let's say it's something with an that's like an album with tchotchkes attached, like digital tchotchkes, or, or you know, some kind of almost like a fan, piece of fan club merchandising. I, I can't believe that those guys are just going to sit back there and say, okay, you know, my end of that $3 million trade is, you know, 10, 1005. <laughs> I, I don't see that, right? So that, so you're saying that labels probably have some rights. It's not, you're not really selling the underlying copyright, but it was say a copyright that the labels created as a work for hire or like album art, right? You know, or something like that. Is that, yeah. is that what you're saying? You think the labels probably legitimately have an interest in that and then that's gonna get very confusing. I think they're gonna legitimately try hard to have a legitimate interest in it. And, and I think that there, you know, there are ways in. And, and the main thing is, uh, just, you know, if you've done a merch deal, like for example, if you, if you have, if you're a band that, that signed up at a time when, you know, somebody was trying to drive business to their merchandising affiliate, not mentioning any names, but their initials are bravado. Um, you know, they, um, you know, this arguably is merch. And, um, you know, that's what I mean. I mean enough money to where, you know, they, they, they're going to start trying to find ways to get their hands on it. I don't, you know, who can blame them? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of money, you know, for the moment. So, so let me just, let me, let me just mention something here. So um, something that a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, uh, artists might have a publishing deal for the songwriting, a record deal for the recording contract. But oftentimes, like, like when I was running around playing sheds, we also had a, third deal with the the arm of Bill Graham Presents that did merchandise, I forget what they were called, to do our merchandise. So you had three different deals and we couldn't just go and make our own merchandise, right? Uh, so that's interesting. No, that's a really good point. And, and, and I think that it is absolutely arguable that this is merchandise. And if you are a label and your artists don't they don't understand that they go and they build a NFT and they sell it for a lot of money. I can imagine the label is going to have a, a not be knocking on their door and saying, where's our cut? It's enough money to sue over. Let's put it that way. It's enough money to sue over. And, and, and it's, you know, it's also, don't forget the unions aren't making any money on this, right? So the, the non-featured musicians don't make a penny. You know, as a right, I mean, they, you know, somebody may decide to give them some money, but but they don't directly, you know, but the unions, uh, you know, once once you've done the session, that's it. You know, this doesn't go in the special payments fund. This doesn't, there's no contribution. There's no pension health and welfare contribution. There's none of it, right? So, um, you know, that's thing. And another place where trouble may come from. Yeah, what, what? 
what Chris is getting at is that on a lot of recordings, there are uh, essentially uh, neighboring rights. They're like residuals in the movie and television. I mean, residuals in the television business where um, the sidemen often on, uh, it's mostly, well, it, it's certain countries in the world that the sidemen, the, the backing musicians like accept a fee, but also in the back of their mind, they know part of the deal is that they will get these uh, sometimes small, um, well, sometimes significant royalties down the road, or especially with union musicians, they get a pension and welfare and contributions to their other benefits that they uh, get from the union, right? So uh, that's sort of another thing that's could leave out. There's, and, and there's one other piece to the union thing, okay? So um, frequently overlooked, <laughs> Until, until you find out the hard way, uh, part of the uh, phonograph record labor agreement and the AFRA code is that if you, if you use a recording um, in, in a new way, right? A reuse of the recording or for something like a commercial, let's say that I've had this come up with commercials on the musicians union side, and I've had to come up with video clips in movies um, on the um, SAG and um, uh, well, mostly SAG side, right? Screen Actors Guild side. So what, what, there's this clause in there that says that you have to negotiate directly with the artist for additional consideration uh, if you wanna use the recording in in some way that qualifies under the, uh, the what they call a um, reuse or um, it's really a kind of a clip license type thing or, or, a, or a television commercial. And this is, can be a substantial amount of money, right? I mean, I did, I, we, we used a recording by, um, well, by, by an older recording by someone who's very well known, and this was that person's signature song in a television commercial, and um, their estate got something like fifty grand, right? Um, just cause, and we couldn't have done it without their consent. So um, there's that. I mean, I, I don't know is that clause is necessarily implicated in every NFT. But I have a feeling that there's going to be an NFT where that clause is implicated. And of course, it, you know, the signatory status doesn't float in the air, but there's going to be a whole question, you know, of, of who the union would have and the artist would have the right to assert that clause against, right? Um, so, you know, we'll see. But that's another, another uh, angle here, which I don't think is necessarily being taken into account. So if you're going to get into the NFT business and you're going to be doing it with back catalog, let's say, um, that that clause could come into play. Right. So um, let me just before we move on to something else, I just want to say about to give the listener an idea of the scale of this. I had a Gillette commercial a number of years back and be and because uh, a song was using a Gillette commercial, which was global. And because, you know, there was, everybody was signatory to the, um, 
union agreements, the three of us who were after members were making like $1,200 a week off of the, because it was such a big budget. It was global. We were making about $1,200 a week while this commercial land as after musicians, right? So this is something, it's not an, it's not nothing. It's like, it's part of the calculation that you do when you play on a record recording that subject through the union agreements. But Nick, I don't want to totally uh, sidetrack this with the union stuff, so that is important. But uh, what do you got for us, Nick? Yeah, I wanted to touch on how artists actually will get paid for these NFTs, direct sales from customers, but do they get royalties for the distribution or if the NFT is sold across customers, which would be known as like a resale royalty, would the NFT be entitled to a resale royalty for the artist? Technically, Alan, how would that, how would you do that in an in, in NFT? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem with all this is it's not fully baked right it's it's this is the same thing that happened I mean, do i buy do i set up like an nft wallet or something as an artist and then every time it gets sold like money goes i'd set up like an if it's, if it's based on ethereum do i set up an ethereum wallet and then every time it gets sold money goes into that or something well, like that i believe or, there would have to be it? a provider who handles some of this but um so you're reliant on another party, right? That would help facilitate this. Cause you can't just do it all on your, on your own. Um, I think the, the trickiest part here is that um, it's the same kind of issue we had when, when the whole blockchain chains thing started, it was people who didn't really understand rights. And so they were like, this is magic, it'll fix everything and all your money will magically flow back to you. But it turns out that's a lot harder to do, um, you know, than, than, it, than it seems on paper. And I think what we're looking at here is a, this one's going so fast, it's, you know, even more not baked. And, you know, as, as you know, Chris and, and you know that, again, with what we we're just talking about of how complex rights can be um unless you fully understand what you're on the hook for as both an artist and as a person purchasing something like i'm still trying to get my brain around if i buy an nft that entitles me to certain rights um i legally may not be entitled to those rights and so i honestly don't know how any of this is gonna gonna work yet it's it's really kind of wacky and crazy how huge this is getting and nobody's even really worked out the basic mechanics of how all this works out it's just it's just crazy chris what do you think on the legal end could you write a binding contract for a resale royalty or something in to one of these because um, that's what they're getting at it's like the idea is like the California fine arts royalty, which is like if you sell a painting later, a certain percentage has to go back to the original painter, right? Or something like that. So the idea is if these things get speculated upon, some royalty would go back to the original writer. Well, there's also about 70 countries in the world where there's a, a resale royalty for visual artists. Um, Already. 
triggered, I, I don't know. You know, it would, it's going to depend on the particular NFT. And, and but but I will tell you that um, you start waving a lot of money around like that, you know, and people uh, begin to take notice. So um, I would expect that um, there's going to be if you don't have all the rights tied down, and th this is going to be, of course, the question uh, with whatever contract you have. If, if some some Grundoon shows up and says, "Well, I'm selling," you know, this Picasso you know, oh, well, it's fair use, right? You know, right? It's not really Picasso. It's not really Picasso, <laughs> but it's just, it's inspired by Picasso. Oh, it's a trans, the NFT is a transformative work and the Supreme Court would be cool with that, right? The it's NFT is a transformative work. Yes, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and oh, I'm gonna do that. You see where that's going, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, it just, to me, it just, it, it's, it's one of those things where there's, there's a market for the grift, but then there's also a market for the people who sue the people who have the grift, right? And there's also a market for the people who have uh, the ability, you know, with badges and guns, you know, who, who, who can go after the people, you know, who have the grift. Even in Belarus, you know, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it's the kind of thing where all these markets haven't quite formed yet, you know, except the grifter market. That's going gangbusters. I do think if you're interested, I have, I have put together in my mind an actual working scenario for how an NFT could work. Yeah. It's happening, right? It's happening right now. So we all know Jack Dorsey of Twitter also is the head of Square. And Square is a payment platform and they purchased Tidal music streaming platform. And everybody was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, because he's got 200 million people over on Twitter, you know, UGC, you know, uh, just dying for access to music, right? Um, and he's a huge cryptocurrency, Bitcoin maximalist. So, you know, while everybody was wondering, like, what's going on here, it actually was a really, really smart acquisition on two fronts. So the first thing is he's now got a music network where artists can create and pair NFTs to payments, including cryptocurrency for a fee, of course. And this can actually create a new type of music store, similar to how when iTunes got started. But you know you're not buying music in this case, um, and you know it could actually breathe some new life into that idea of a store. Um, but you've already got the music because it's part of your streaming solution on 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 title. But here's the other clever bit, and this is why I think he did this: is by buying it through Square, he completely bypasses the music rights garbage that he would have to deal with if it had been Twitter. If it had been Twitter, he'd have to go, you know, on Ben to the labels and start negotiating for rights. But this is a payment platform. We're not using the music. <laughs> this is a way to get payments, NFTs, and music all connected. So it's not the music itself. It's you have the ability to now connect every artist to an NFT through the streaming platform. So you'll go on to um, uh, Tidal 
and you'll see there's a little symbol for an NFT and you'll be able to buy that NFT right there. And guess what? Since it's not really attached to the music, it's just data. Uh, he may think this is his way to get around all the rights issues. So it actually might be a very, very clever way of also then getting NFTs now into Twitter. So he backdoors music into Twitter without having to do the whole rights dance. Um, but there is there is a couple of problems here. And one of them is it's the same thing we saw with, with iTunes back in the day, which was, remember, they used to have DRM. And NFTs are likely going to be a new type of DRM. And that means you have lock-in. So you're going to be locked into a platform because there's no interoperability with any of this stuff. So um, that's, that's what I think. DRM is digital rights management. In the early days of the Apple iTunes store, um, your file was linked to your iTunes account. And you couldn't really play it unless your iTunes, you could only play it on a certain number of iTunes enabled devices, right? I think it was five or across the family, it was 10. I think it's still five um, authorized devices, but it was only Apple devices, which was the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry. Yeah. So I think that, I think this was, again, while everybody was wondering, well, why didn't he just do it with Twitter? Because he's got this huge audience waiting to get their hands on that music and because he'd have the rights issue. But now he can take a payment processor that does deal with cryptocurrency and link to music in a different way and then backdoor into back into Twitter and sell NFTs through Twitter. That's what I think. That's interesting. We've always said that, that the, you know, there was a, um, when they started the Mechanical Licensing Collective, they announced two vendors. One was the Harry Fox Agency, which everybody kind of understood, although had strong misgivings about. But the other was Consensus, which is the um, Joe Lubin Ethereum uh, yes. um, spoke, right? And we always assumed that they were trying to put a use case uh, for, for Ether. <laughs> I always laugh when I say that, but they were trying to prove a use case for ether uh, in the music business. And they had, they had had one before that, that didn't really go anywhere, right? That was an ether uh, attempt to replace ASCAP somehow. I don't really quite follow it, but it didn't really go anywhere. But this did, right? But we haven't heard from them. I mean, you haven't heard a peep out of consensus the whole time that would explain why they were there, right? And so this is a very interesting angle because I would assume that Square is take doing doing cryptocurrency. They're also doing Ether, right? They're, they're agnostic. Yeah, I'm certain. To... Yeah, they don't care uh, as long as it's legal and uh, uh, it has a, a, a market for it. But I think that this was a very now to your earlier points that this is going to be a lot more complicated once the money starts flowing. I do think this is a very, very clever way of putting the pieces together and um, trying to like not deal with, because look, I've dealt with the, with the major labels. I spent years negotiating with them. I got one major label to sign up and uh, two others just 
redlined me to death. I know how complicated that process is. So you know he's been in these meetings and Twitter's probably just said, we're not gonna touch this, right? But this way, he's already got the rights <laughs> at title. And now he's got a huge catalog of millions of tracks and artists that he can link NFTs to. And the reason I, I think he's doing this is because I pitched the same idea to labels, not, not blockchain, but like this same type of idea of having a collectible linked to uh, music inside of a library uh, like four years ago. So when I saw this, I was like, oh my God, he's gonna, he's gonna backdoor music into Twitter and he's gonna bring NFTs and he's gonna combine all of it into a new money stream. And it may work. I don't know. But it again, like I said, he's got a lot of problems to solve. And one of them is going to be the labels are going to come knocking when you want to re-up your, your contracts with title. And there are going to be all the issues of uh, whether there's a DRM element to it or what if you want your money back? <laughs> that's really hard to do in, in cryptocurrency and blockchain. So who knows? But I think that's going to happen. I think that's going to happen. That's interesting. And, they, and they, you know, there is usually a clause in those label licenses to uh, services that allows them to uh, terminate if the, um, if the deal is assigned by anything other than, you know, uh, a merger, right? And so if they did it right, they might even be able to get, get around the uh, consent to assignment clause. Um, but you're right. The, the clock is ticking. <laughs> it's only a matter of time until, until that, that issue is uh, right. Well, that is actually a great way to end out the episode for today. I think we really delved into the different problems of NFTs, and we always love to end on a bright note of a way that things can be resolved and to look into the future. So yeah, again, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. We really do appreciate you hopping on the phone call to talk about artist rights and specifically with NFTs. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. I, I love, I love, I love doing, I love having these conversations because, you know, uh, I like, uh, I think sunlight is, <laughs> it's, it's a good disinfectant and we should be talking about these things seriously, not just, you know, jump on the bandwagon it's all going to be great thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the artist rights watch i hope you enjoyed the conversation if you want to join in on the conversation you can add us on twitter at artist rights or on facebook at artist rights watch or you can check out our website artistrightswatch.com if you missed any of that you can check our show notes it has all that information and our contact information also if you specifically like today's topic, there will also be extra information in the show notes as well where you can do extra research and learn more about today's topic. We'll catch you again next time where we will be continuing our watch for artist rights. Cheers.